everybody. Duncan Green here with the weekly roundup of posts on From Poverty to Power. Uh, there's a bit of a theme this week, which is all the activities and uh, responses from social movements and NGOs to COVID, especially around excluded groups. So we got three posts on child marriage, on um, uh, disability and on people with HIV, um, all three of them by specialists in those fields. Uh, and they sort of come together nicely as an example of how NGOs and social movements are correcting and improving and filling the gaps in state responses to the pandemic. But uh, I'll get on with the show now. And um, first up was links I liked. Now, the, there's a bit of a problem on Twitter, which is, you know, when you want to read something about some really grim topic, you have to um, click on a little heart. And I felt a bit like that with the links I liked um, uh, title this week because one of them, and the one that's really uh, uh, obsessing me a bit at the moment, is about COVID and the sheer injustice of what's going on with COVID vaccines um, and this whole idea that by, by, by grabbing all the vaccines for themselves, the rich countries have, have basically left, not only left the developing world in the lurch, and victim to, uh, you know, uh, exposed to terrible uh, consequences in terms of the disease, but also basically created a giant Petri dish for the uh, creation of new variants, which is what we saw this week. And that was my link to the Omicron variant, which has been sort of gathering force throughout the week and will dominate the news, I think, um, for the next few weeks. So how stupid is it to, to, to shoot yourself in the foot by being selfish and uh, and thoughtless. And that is exactly what has happened globally. It's, a, it's probably one of the biggest failings in global governance that we've seen for several years. So um, on that note, I shall move on to the three posts on the response to COVID. Um, first up was a post by Shahid Anam of the Munesha Jono Foundation in Bangladesh. And Shahin is, is looking at a very important um, issue that has arisen because of COVID. With schools closed and families feeling the pinch of inflation and lost income, UNICEF estimates that the pandemic has put an additional 10 million girls at risk of early marriage. And Shane goes on to talk about some specific cases. Shoralika Parveen from Kurigram in northern Bangladesh was a star football player who dreamed of playing on the national football team. She even received a Best Player Award from the Prime Minister, Sheikh Hasina. However, age 16, the ninth grader became a victim of child marriage during the pandemic, as did seven other footballers in her class. Now, instead of planning the next pass or goal on the football field, their wives responsible for managing households. But did their dreams and aspirations have to end with early marriage? Bangladesh has one of the highest rates of child marriage in the world, with 51% of girls married before they're 18. The present commitment of the government is to eliminate marriage below 16 years by 2024 and eradicate child marriage by 2041. In theory, offenders can face five years in jail, but there are no known cases of anyone having been punished for enabling or forcing children to marry. Women and child rights activists found it difficult to prevent child marriage even before the COVID pandemic. In a context of widespread sexual harassment of young women and girls, Families believe that the earlier a girl is married, the better. Uh, the better it is for the reputation of the family. And in addition, demands for dowry are lower for younger brides. 
Studies conducted by the Munasha Jono Foundation, MJF, in the one-third of the country's districts in which MJF partners work, uncovered almost 14,000 illegal child marriages in the first six months of the pandemic. In spite of such evidence, no action was taken to reverse the trend. Saving lives, providing relief to those most affected and getting the economy back on track were deemed more important than preventing child marriage. When schools reopened in September 2021 after 18 months of closure, reports came in from across Bangladesh of classrooms without girls in the 9th and 10th grades, most of them victims of child marriage. The negative impacts of child marriage on the lives of young girls are well known. It strips them of personal autonomy, forcing them into a physical and social relationship they are not prepared for. There are countless stories of the horrors young girls face when forced to marry older men. Given this situation, what can we do? Does a young girl, young girl have to forego all her dreams and ambitions just because she is married? And that even forcefully or illegally? Does she cease to be a child with hopes to fly, to dream and express herself? The answer should be an emphatic no. It is wrong to abandon them, to treat them as married women and move on, or at best to try and prevent further early marriage. We must make a conscious decision to bring those girls back to school, give them a chance of following their dreams and living an independent life. There are examples of such positive practices. One of MJF's partners, partner NGOs in Dinajpur, Udog, has successfully encouraged over 50 child brides to return to school helping them negotiate with their husbands and in-laws with the cooperation of local authorities and teachers. And then there's an important policy decision that has to be taken to abandon the long-standing rule by which girls lose their secondary school stipends after marriage to encourage them to stay on or return. Most important of all, existing institutions such as child marriage prevention committees must be activated and relevant officials held accountable for neglecting their duties. The larger question is what is the worth of a girl in our society? Is she loved and recognised for the joy and care she gives to the family? Or is she a burden to be sent away at the first opportunity? The Covid victims of child marriage deserve accountability and a second chance. And I thought that, that I mean it was very well written and very powerful but it also struck me because so much of what we hear about Bangladesh is positive. It's a positive story in terms of uh, gender in terms of uh, poverty reduction so um, obviously not not all positive and there's a really big issue there on, on child marriage and I, I learnt a lot from that post. The second topic in this kind of survey of, of, of groups who've been really badly hit by Covid and what uh, the social movements and NGOs have done was on HIV and this is uh, this was published on World AIDS Day December the 1st and written by Ian Hodgson and Marina Scott um, of the Frontline AIDS organisation. Um, and it's called When Two Pandemics Collide, How the HIV Community Has Shown Resilience, Innovation and Agency in the Time of COVID-19. For the estimated 38 million people living with HIV, COVID-19 has meant one pandemic overlaid on another. The interaction between the two pandemics and how the HIV community has responded provide important lessons for the future. Sex workers, people who use drugs, adolescent girls and young women, LGBT plus people and people living with HIV have seen restrictions on access to HIV pre prevention and treatment and other health services as well as increased stigma. 
There is evidence of threats to human rights, where infection control has been employed as a repressive tool against marginalised communities. For many people affected by HIV, social isolation and depression has contributed to poorer mental health and physical health. So then the authors look at several topics. Emergent agency, which is the name of the project that I've been involved in with a bunch of other people at, uh, at Oxfam over the last year. And, and Ian and Marina were two, two of the people involved in the, in the HIV cluster, the, the group of people looking at HIV in particular within that Brigade project. But has COVID-19 also brought something positive to communities, capacity to choose and to affect change? Have the responses triggered by COVID-19 created new networks, organisations, politics or option? As part of Oxfam's Emergent Agency Research Project, Frontline AIDS has collected data from 40 global partners in Africa, Asia, Latin America and Eastern Europe through surveys and in-depth interviews. We found that marginalised communities and civil society organisations, CSOs, that support them have indeed been under a lot of strain responding, often in difficult circumstances, but we also found resilience, innovation and adaptation that will benefit the responses to HIV and other health issues in the years to come. There are three areas where the HIV community response has been especially significant, shining a light on innovation and the emergence of community power. The first is increased digitalization. CSOs have provided online counseling, shared COVID information and dispelled misinformation via WhatsApp and used Instagram influencers to share public health information. This digitalization of the, HI, uh, of the HIV response has clear benefits, allowing CSOs to share information rapidly and to reach people unable to leave their homes. But there are limitations. The digital divide is a reminder that not all people have access to computers, smartphones or the internet. There are also important issues around privacy, confidentiality, data ownership and the security of personal information. This is of special concern for communities who are criminalised, such as people who use drugs, sex workers and men who have sex with men. Then the second uh, aspect they wanted to, pick, to highlight was the strength of communities. COVID forced communities and CSOs to reshape their interventions. Many CSOs were pushed into novel areas such as humanitarian aid and handing out personal protective equipment, where local government-led provision was inadequate. A fundamental role of many CSOs during COVID was to provide current and accurate information. Providing humanitarian aid was, for many CSOs working on HIV, relatively new. For a Ugandan organisation working with young people, there was hunger and young people were trying to survive. It was all hard. Providing food parcels, soap and sanitizers became for many CSOs as routine as ensuring access to HIV treatment and prevention. And then the third aspect they pick up is innovation. We've also seen remarkable examples of innovative responses from communities and CSOs. Some responses have reshaped existing services while others have created completely new ways of working. One partner taught sex workers to use technologies and help them pay for mobile data so they can access the internet on their mobile phones. An organization in Uganda had community members collect medications for each other. In Kenya, a CSO provided legal and paralegal training for community workers to help trans people who faced increased harassment during COVID. And then their conclusion is, 
Community-led responses have, over the last four, four decades, proven effective for addressing HIV. COVID has shown us that these same community-led responses are adaptable and transferable to pandemic preparedness in the future. And then the final post, uh, which was came out on uh, just ahead of Friday's International Day for Persons with Disabilities, was written by Jesse Meany Davis, and it's on how getting organised has helped mitigate the impact of COVID on people with disabilities. People with disabilities have been disproportionately affected by the COVID pandemic, and not only because of the risks associated with underlying health conditions. The Disability Inclusion Help Desk's new report, and there's a link in the blog, explains how the exclusion of organisations of people with disabilities, OPDs, sorry, another acronym, from decision-making, resulted in severe impacts for people with disabilities and how OPDs in Bangladesh, Nigeria and Zimbabwe successfully advocated for and provided vital assistance to people with disabilities despite major obstacles. This is part of a wider set of research findings on the impact of COVID on people with disabilities throughout Africa and Asia. During the pandemic, people with disabilities and OPDs were largely excluded from disaster planning and response mechanisms. Instead of being invited to work with governments and humanitarian actors, they found themselves trying to mitigate the damage caused by policies decisions that had not adequately considered and included them. This had the following impacts. Access to information. Government information about the pandemic was not accessible to people with disabilities. OPDs played a key role in advocating for and producing and disseminating accessible information. Social protection. Many people with disabilities could not access government food and financial assistance or social protection. For example, in Zimbabwe, there was no national register of people with disabilities, which meant many people with disabilities did not receive assistance. And in Bangladesh, many people with disabilities did not have national ID cards, which precluded access to food and cash. OPDs played a key role advocating for inclusion in social protection schemes, providing assistance to themselves with limited resources, or working with governments to provide information from needs assessments and disability data to improve delivery. And gender-based violence, OPDs observed an increase in GBV against women and girls with disabilities during lockdowns and as economic situations deteriorated. Barriers to accessing support, such as physically inaccessible and or discriminatory GBV services, travel distances, inaccessible transport, unresponsive or insensitive police and legal services, and the need to be accompanied by assistance or caregivers who in some instances may be perpetrators, were exacerbated by restrictions on movement and OPD's limited funding during the pandemic. Some organisations of women with disabilities relied on community members to voluntarily monitor and follow up on cases of GBV in rural areas. While others collaborated with women's rights organisations to ensure services were disability inclusive. An OPD in Bangladesh highlighted the unique challenge of trying to assist women with disabilities who have experienced financial abuse during the pandemic, citing one instance of a woman with a, with a disability dying by suicide after her savings and disability allowance were stolen by her family members. Mental health services. The pandemic highlighted the need for improved mental health responses, both for people without disabilities and people with pre-existing mental health conditions and psychosocial disabilities. Research during the pandemic 
found that 82% of survey respondents with disabilities said they were more anxious, nervous or worried than before the pandemic, and almost half sought support for anxiety and depression. OPDs were a key source of information, peer support and mental health support for people with disabilities and their families. In Nigeria, She Rides Woman expanded their mental health and psychosocial services due to the dramatic increase in calls for help. Their experience of assisting people experiencing mental health crises helped them to highlight the systemic gaps in mental health care and the need for human rights-based mental health legislation in Nigeria. Education. Many OPDs had to stop their work on disability-inclusive education because schools were closed. In some cases, funds for education activities were reallocated to pandemic response due to pressure from funders. OPDs continued to disseminate messages about the inclusion of children with disabilities and raised concern about those children being excluded from remote education during lockdowns and potentially in the longer term. And finally, advocacy. OPDs advocated for more disability-inclusive responses from governments. Their governments commonly only adapted their pandemic responses to be disability-inclusive after successful advocacy by OPDs. For example, many governments updated their communications to be accessible to people with disabilities under great pressure from OPDs. So I think those last few posts are part of a really interesting wave of work by Oxfam, LSE, lots of others, trying to find out what's been going on under the radar on in the responses to the pandemic. And what we found is an enormous amount of activity and some shifts in the way social movements organise, the way NGOs organise, and their relations with, with government and their role in these crises, which I think is going to bear fruit in you know, the years to come. Um, when hopefully this particular pandemic is over. Although right now, that doesn't feel like any time soon. And on that gloomy note, sorry about that. Have a great weekend and we'll talk next week.